0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
2: Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth.
1: Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring.
0: Turn it off.
2: The Theater of Thrills presents Ray Moland in a preview of his forthcoming paramount picture, The Big Clock. But first, a word from the director of this program, Mr. Anton M. Leader. Suspense is my business. But of the hundreds of spine-chilling tales I've seen, heard, or read, The Big Clock tops the list for its relentless grip on the emotions for its ever-mounting spell of suspense. And now, Ray Meland in highlights of his amazing role in the big clock. My time is running out. Every second brings me closer to death. They're hunting for me everywhere, but they don't know how close I am. Right here, trapped by the big clock. An average guy with a family and a job he liked, with everything turned upside down by the strange things that happened in 36 hours. A wonderful afternoon with Georgette, who wanted me for all the right reasons. The crazy evening with Pauline, who wanted me for all the wrong ones. The long moment with Janet, who wanted me for his own dark reasons. We have our man. He was just seen entering the building. I wanted emergency order issued. All exits blocked, the building closed. Nobody's leaving identified. You take charge. Yes, I led the hunt for the man that nobody knew. And the orders were shoot to kill twisting and turning through all the shadowed byways of a skyscraper city. A grim, relentless search that could lead to only one man, myself. Well, that's just a brief hint of the thrills which make the big clock far more than just an exciting picture. To my mind, it's one of the screen's great masterpieces of suspense, and it's coming to this theater, so don't miss it.
0: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Terry Frost. Hello, Mike, and hello, everybody, and hello, Tim. Also back in the booth is Mr. Tim Luz.
1: Hello, thanks. Great to be back again. November 2020
0: kicks off with a look at John Farrow's The Big Clock based on the 1946 novel by Kenneth Fearing. It's the story of George Stroud, played by Raymond Milland, an editor at Crimeways Magazine, and an employee of Earl Janeth, played by Charles Lawton. When a woman that both Stroud and Janeth have been sleeping with is murdered, Stroud is put on the case to find out who was last seen with the victim. And, of course, that last person looks a lot like him. Now, we will be spoiling this film as we go along, as well as the film's Police Python 357, no Way Out and Out of Time, so if you don't want any of those ruined, turn off the podcast, come back after you've seen those movies, we will still be here. So Terry, when was the first time you saw The Big Clock and what did you think?
3: I think it may have been on late night television, one of those ones where you get a bit of insomnia or I was working shift work, I don't remember which, and I saw it and I kind of like Ray Moland and I definitely like Charles Lawton. So I watched it, and yeah, I I really liked the way it went. I I liked the fact that I didn't know where it was going to go the first time I saw it, and that they kept throwing different twists and turns on the plot to make it really interesting. So yeah, I I enjoyed it, and years later, I I think I had a VHS tape of it, and most recently, I'm still looking for a decent DVD or Blu-ray copy of it.
0: There is a really good blu-ray of this that came out and i'm trying i'm looking for it right there it is it came out on arrow academy and it's uh, really nice it's got an audio commentary it's got a couple extras on there so i would recommend that to you i will write, i've written that down and tim how about you
1: the first time i saw it would have been around somewhere in the mid-2000s Though i keep going through these or i kept going through these periodic dives into old classic film noirs. I remember there was like a run of like a month I did like Narrow Margin, Big Combo, Desperate Hours, and this. And I remember being really impressed by the complexity of it, being impressed by the amount of humor in it, which I really like. It feels to me a little different than most film noirs. It's not quite as cynical. It almost, to me, feels a little bit more like um, an Alfred Hitchcock thriller from that period where it's really suspenseful, but it also is, has some kind of cheeky humor and it's light and a little glamorous. But I really dug it. And my appreciation for it and for especially Charles Lawton's performance, only gone up the more I see it.
0: Yeah, this is very Hitchcock-like. I can see the comparison quite a bit. I know that this has been described, I think it was uh, uh, Elaine Silver described it as, quote, a lighter shade of noir. <laughs> it's not as yeah. heavy as, say, Ministry of Fear or some of the other films noir that uh, Ray Milland was in around the same time. It does have the humor. It starts off like a very typical film noir, where we have our protagonist, Ray Milland, hiding out inside of the guts of this big clock of the title, and we have the voiceover and all this, and then we get into the story proper, and so you think it's going to be very much a typical film noir. Okay, we've got the voiceover, we've got the flashback, here's our character who's in peril, what's going to happen to this guy, how is the world going to fuck this guy over, because... Those are the best films noir, which are the ones where you're fucked at the beginning and you're even more fucked by the end of it. No, this subverts expectations as you go along, though it does play like a very suspenseful thriller as you go through this. But yeah, those moments of levity are fantastic, and I think that John Farrell, the director, really knew how to control the audience, how to manipulate us, and I would say that the adaptation by, I think it's uh, John Latimer... Mm. Really, really good as well, and the Kenneth Fearing novel is fantastic too. I have to recommend that to everybody listening.
3: While we're speaking about Hitchcock, I think that Lawton's version of Earl Jeneth, the, the publisher, feels very much like Alfred Hitchcock himself. He's got the suits and he's, of course, portly, and there is that kind of slow speech pattern that Jeneth has, which reminded me just a bit of Hitchcock.
1: That actually occurred to me, too, watching it. It feels like Janet, like Hitchcock, has a very carefully cultivated image that he presents to the world. That he's kind of selling himself as this man who's totally in control of everything. For Hitchcock, control the audience. For him, control this company and all their readers. Yeah,
3: and he has one of the worst mustaches in the world.
0: (laughs) But, man, is he taking care of that mustache? He's constantly wiping it down. And, oh, it's such a great character trait. He could hide behind that mustache or make the mustache do the acting for him, but he is in complete control of that mustache.
3: Yeah, I think he's he's wondering whether it's left over from the Canterville ghost or something
0: like that. This <laughs> is such a weird film when you look at the pedigree of it, because you've got an Australian director, you've got Maureen Sullivan, who's Irish, you've got the Welsh, Ray Land, you've got the English, Charles Lawton, and here they are all playing these very... American roles. Yeah. And I like that Lawton, though, takes his English accent and he makes it more into an aristocratic American accent. And he just has this whole way of, of carrying himself. When we first are introduced to him, when he walks in that room and starts spitting out how many seconds a man has in his life and why are they wasting his time.
2: I resent, this, I resent this deeply. There are 2,081,376,000 seconds in the average man's life each take the property of a heart. And yet you sit here useless to taking your lives away because certain members of our conference are not on schedule. Where is George Stroud? I've always trying to find him. I do not propose to be held up, not even by Mr. Stroud.
0: The movie's called The Big Clock. Clocks and timepieces and time, it just runs through this film. And it is just amazing to see all the different ways that they can work time into it. That they make the murder weapon a sundial. You know, it's like, oh, well that's really nice that they're even using time as a murder weapon.
3: And Janet is an interesting character because he inspires fear, but he doesn't really inspire loyalty. Everybody Mm. keeps working for him because they just should scare the guy.
1: And yet he seems kind of surprised when he's confronted with that twice that, you know, people will just make fun of you behind your back. They don't really like you. They're just either impressed with your prestige or they're afraid of you. And both times he has the reaction of killing that person for slightly different reasons. You're saying
3: people are never delusional?
1: (laughs) No. If anything, I think recent events have made this character feel that much more compelling and that much more real.
0: Totally agree. (laughs) Though he's actually – it seems like a good businessman because he does have this whole staff of people that work for him. And he's got – it's like a media empire. And he's got all of these different magazines. And they're very specific to different audiences. And it's very – much like the time life empire where you had sports illustrated and I can't remember which of the women's magazines that they owned and which of the science magazines and just like splitting the world into these very discrete buckets. And then George Stroud is one that can take those buckets and use those for crime waves to say like, okay, well this guy is a tennis player. So let's go to the people that run the sports magazine and give me a guy from there who can tell me everything about tennis or something you know he uses all those different aspects in order to bring them together and he's got this great staff of writers underneath him that are pretty much investigators and he's got this whole way of setting up clues on this board
2: well you've heard of our blackboard well let me show you we call it the system of the irrelevant clue now you see the police only look for relevant clues they haven't got time for much else. But we assemble all the clues. We recreate the man, his, his character, his mind, his emotions. And when you have that pattern, it's easy enough to figure out where he'll be. That's oh, interesting.
3: And Janus World's a very kind of rectilinear one. If you look at the whole building, everything is geometric. The desks are geometric. The walls are, the fittings in the in the offices are. It's a very kind of cold and sterile world in a way. It's a machine for producing news and entertainment in a sense.
1: And the lack of decoration. I remember Janus' office has these plaster, stone-looking walls, it almost look like a tomb. I mean, I'm not sure if we see much decoration outside of Stroud, who has the painting on his wall. It seems like everything else is very ascetic and clear and, and not very imaginative.
3: There's a really subtle gag that I noticed in this one, too, where Janet talks to Stroud's secretary and says, hello, Miss Adams, how's that child of yours? And you go, okay, so this woman's had a child out of wedlock and he's mentioning it. It may even have been a little ad lib by Lawton which kind of got through
1: I love her reaction that she smiles like, oh, my God, he noticed me. He knows I have a child. He, I must be important. And then she looks at Ray Milan's expression and goes, oh, no, I shouldn't be celebrating. Never mind.
0: Stroud is this almost force of chaos. You know, like I said, he's kind of pulling from each of the magazines. You mentioned he's got artwork on his walls as opposed to the austere walls of other people. And he really has not that much compunction about going out on the town with janet's girlfriend which in the book is much more lewd uh he has no problem running around on georgette and they really took him and cleaned him up for the movie <laughs> they didn't want the philanderer as our main character as it is it's still a little questionable him running around with her and he ends up drinking and missing his flight to where is it florida that they're going
1: west virginia i think
0: Virginia Beach? It's much more innocent in the movie than it is in the book, that's for sure. Another reason to hate the production code. But they do definitely sneak some things through with the production code in place, especially the feelings between Janeth and his right-hand man, Steve Hagen, who's played by the just absolutely wonderful George McCready. There's never been a time where I've seen George McCready and said, wow, that's a bad performance. He is always so rock solid, especially in something like Paths of Glory. But here he is equally as solid. George McCready's got that scar
3: on his face as well. He's kind of like the English actor Leslie Banks. If George McCready is playing a sympathetic role, you see the side of his face without the scar. If he's playing an unsympathetic role, you see the side of the face with the scar. It's an interesting way that both of those actors, used their their physical appearance to inform what they were doing.
1: And I like how he's kind of a counterpart to Lawton in that Lawton, he's not overacting, but he's playing it big. I mean, that's what he's doing. And MacReady is very much more subtle in how he's playing uh, Hagen, just very little hints of of what's on his mind and what he's thinking. It's funny because watching it this time, as opposed to the book where it's very clear that the two of them, there is a homoerotic tension or if not a full on affair between the two of them. Reading it in the movie, I got the sense of Hagen much more as sort of the sycophant, that he's sort of the Dwight Schrute of the office, that he's, he's completely supportive of Janet, but because what, like Janet says, you know, I always imagine that one day you'd want to be in my shoes. That's what I think. And I think he's helping Janet, not because he really likes him, but because I need him to run this company a little bit longer so I can get in position to actually take over.
3: Yeah, I can see that in there. But, uh, yeah, that, uh, tension. And also he, he's very kind of meticulous and he's wearing a bow tie and things like that. So that kind of gives a certain impression to the character in the movie. Yeah,
0: it's cool. Bow ties are cool. And I like that it's Hagen's house that is the place of refuge, that after Janeth kills Pauline, that that is where he goes to, is he goes to Steve Hagen's house and is just like, hey, sorry, I shouldn't have done this, but you're the only person I can turn to. And I guess the other homoerotic relationship in there is between Janeth and his driver slash bodyguard slash mute assistant bill who's played by a really young harry morgan this is before way before dragnet and of course way way before mash and seeing him with dark hair and he's not young by any stretch of the imagination but he's much younger than i'm used to seeing him and for a little guy he's super menacing just in those looks that he gives
1: I know. I never would have thought Harry Morgan could be like this sort of grim reaper figure of death, but man, the moment he just walks into a scene and gives Ray Milan that glare, you're like, "Uh oh."
3: And the massage scene where he's massaging Janet, and there's that look on his face, like, you know, "Please tell me
0: to kill somebody." There's that amazing four shot that we have with the the four main male characters of Janet Hagen, Stroud, and Bill. And just them, and I love that it cuts to the close-ups of each of them as they're talking, but they'll cut to Bill, and of course he's silent.
1: (laughs) I was amazed by a few times when they'll get a new clue, and it's a crowd of people surrounding Stroud talking about it, and then all of a sudden there'll be just a gap in the crowd, and somehow Harry Morgan finds that gap and just suddenly steps right into it to stare right towards them, and you're like, yep, he's like a, a predator that just found some trace of its prey, like, what, what, where?
3: And while we're on the early part of the movie, too, um, Noel Neal from Superman is the elevator girl in this movie. Yeah, Lois Lane is the elevator girl. I love that. And she gets a couple of good lines in there and and really um, inhabits the scene nicely.
1: And I think this was the same year that she started playing Lois Lane. I think the the first Superman serial was this year.
3: I really liked her. Having somebody else who works in the operation and Mm -hmm. her laying out the rules that she had to live by while she was working as an elevator girl was kind of cool, and it, and it gave it that little bit of breathing space in the movie. One, well, that great
0: gag of taking the sets and moving the sets across, so it looks like they're actually in an elevator and filming inside of an elevator. See, is that what they did? Because I thought it
1: was a projection screen.
0: A couple of them were, but a
1: couple
3: of them weren't. So I think the, what they did was they had a couple. The first one, I think, is a real one. And then mm. some of the other ones were rear projections, where they just kind of slid a screen in the way and did it like that uh it it works well though The first time i saw it i thought that's what they did but then watching it the two times i've watched it now there is some reprojection work done there with just a couple of people walking in front of the reprojection to give it a bit of depth
1: it reminded me of a similar shot very early in double indemnity where fred mcmurray goes to the insurance office gets in the elevator goes up and then exits and the camera leaves with him and you assume that they just kind of turn the elevator set around to a different part of the set but it was pretty seamless and same here too
3: yeah, they didn't do what they did in Touch of Evil, which is get the whole camera crew into the elevator.
0: I think it was between the elevator and the way that we zoom in at the beginning or kind of fly in, and we have the big clock and the idea of the big clock that kind of controls everything in this building. I know that the Coen brothers relied a lot on, say, Sturgis and Wilder for the Hudsucker proxy, but I could really see... The big clock being an inspiration well. punch in the clock. I suppose we we'll gonna spend a lot of time inside of the clock during that final battle in Hudsucker Proxy. Not to ruin that movie for folks. But that and the voiceover and all that kind of stuff kind of reminded me of that. Though, I'll take Noel Neal over Buzz the elevator boy any day.
1: <laughs> I was thinking of that with the Harry Morgan character. He kind of has a counterpart in Hudsucker with that creepy bald janitor who's always lingering around in the background. Oh, yeah. I totally didn't even pick
0: that up. I love in the book, George doesn't have a son. He's got a daughter. Though I was trying, I was trying to decipher because I thought at one point they said George Jr., but they also mentioned Georgia, unless he's got a son and a daughter. But this whole weird thing that it's George married to Georgette who has a son named George Jr. And in the book, a daughter named Georgia. It's like, come on, guys.
1: It worked for George Foreman. I mean,
0: And the kid
3: actor they've got to play, the son, is a really bad actor. <laughs> yeah. And I love that. I love the fact that they've got one bad actor in there, and they make it a kid who's in there for one scene.
0: The audio commentary on the disc points out that this beginning, the first third of the movie, the first act in the movie, if you carve out that beginning of him inside of the mechanism of the big clock and having this panicked voiceover – this could be a screwball comedy in the first part of it. This whole thing of, hey, my wife and I were going on our honeymoon, but you have a five-year-old child. I know we keep getting delayed. You know, it's almost like something that Cary Grant would be involved in. You know, it's like, oh no, I have to make it to the airport and and see my wife and blah blah blah. And it's this whole weird thing that is going on with him trying to make it to this flight to go out down to West Virginia with the wife. And then it turns into a murder mystery, and it's just like this, you know, we we're talking about that this is a lighter noir, and I think some of that is because of these weird screwball moments that are happening in the beginning of the film. And we still get those touches of humor, even when things are almost at the darkest.
3: And Ray Mulan plays it really nicely, too. Oh, yeah. Ray has got that kind of thing with his career where at the start he, he did interesting leading man characters, apart from things like The Lost Weekend. And
0: then suddenly he starts playing curmudgeons for the rest of his career. When he was good, he was great. Things like Ministry of Fear I mentioned, The Uninvited. I absolutely love him in the major and the minor. I mean, that is a great, again, twisted film. (laughs) But so many great roles. And then, yeah, towards the end, man, he was that... You know, second banana, evil guy, murderer on Columbo, Bad Guy and Son of Rosemary's Baby. Not so many good roles towards the end there, which is a shame because he was such a great actor.
3: I liked him in golden earrings too, with uh with my Lady Dietrich.
1: See, it's funny, going into this movie for the first time, I was used to Milan as a villain because of Dial M for Murder and even growing up with Escape to Witch Mountain, movies like that. So I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to buy him as a good guy, but watching it, I really could. And you're right, something about his performance in the first half where it's all light and goofy had a very Cary Grant vibe to it. When he's playing drunk in particular, I just kept thinking of like North by Northwest when Cary Grant is completely sauced and, and yelling at everybody. <laughs>
3: Those bar scenes are a lot of fun, too, because they're playing I'm um, in the mood for love in the background while they're, while they're doing the meet cube between him and uh, Janice's mistress, and, which is uh, oh, sorry, kind, of, kind of a nice little extra layer.
1: There's a real brilliance to what Farrow and the screenwriter Jonathan Latimer do, do with those opening scenes where where they're at this quirky bar and it's all goofy and it's all funny. And they're kind of impressing these little moments on the audience's mind as, oh, wasn't that a cute moment? And then all of a sudden, the second half of the film, all those little things become so important in the manhunt. It's a brilliant way of sort of setting that up for the audience to remember it and then for it to pay off later.
0: Oh, yeah. And there are little things like, here, use my handkerchief to clean up this green drink that spilled on you. And that becomes such a huge thing. And it's like they showed it to us, but they didn't hammer us over the head with anything. I want to hang out in Bert's bar for a while. Bert's
3: bar is one of the great inventions (laughs) of this movie where you get a free drink. If you can um, ask him for something that isn't sitting up above the bar
0: and the way that he will kind of manipulate things and be like, Oh yeah, this, uh, this little piece here was from a, uh, a, a train that crashed into the, the bar 20 years ago. If somebody asked for like a train whistle or something, <laughs> it will be like, oh, no, well, I don't have that, but I do have this. So, like, We're looking for a green clock, and then he takes a, a green strip of, of uh, fabric and ties it around a sundial. It's like, okay, that works. And I'd like, too, that they use that as the background for the film, when the when the credits are rolling, is that sundial? So we're we've already got that in our mind before we even start the film. It's just beautiful foreshadowing, and that sundial is a nasty-looking weapon with the sparks sticking out of it. Oh well.
3: yeah, you don't need to see the murder to know exactly the way Janeth did it.
1: Yeah, it's tastefully done, but man, it's a shocking moment. It's, it's just so fast and heavy. Ooh.
0: That close-up right beforehand, too, with Lawton's face and the way that he's twitching the side of his mouth it is just so great it's like how can you even have that muscle control to be able to get that twitch going he just looks like a wild animal and the quivering jowls
1: and i feel like up to that point we haven't had close-ups that tight on anybody and all the camera work's been very smooth and fluid these incredible long tracking shots so to suddenly jump to that it really puts us into his mindset of he is disturbed and she is disturbed and this is going to go horribly wrong
3: and up to then, Janice, a kind of laconic character. He's slow at speaking, and even though the things he's saying are, are at times monstrous, the pacing and, and just the kind of languor that he has
0: in speaking is totally thrown away when he has that moment of total rage. He is such a creep, though. The way that he is listening in on George when he's having a conversation, and you can hear the conversation in janet's office and pauline walks in and she hears part of the conversation she's able to bring it up later on to to george when they're out carousing that's really creepy that your boss is listening in on you i suppose it's kind of like now where they can read every single email that we send every case strike you send yeah
1: and it goes to that sense of total control he has to have that he knows this light bulb has been on for four hours that's too long dock somebody's pay that he has to feel like he's in control of every facet of this building and himself as well he might be the only guy who wears a double-breasted suit like it's a suit of armor. Every time he walks in, they just you feel like this this wall between him and everybody else.
0: They took the big clock of the book, which was not actually a clock. It was a metaphor. It was this whole idea of there is a clock in the world, and that when things are going well— time might slow down or you know might run backwards in order to like fuck with you just like this whole it reminded me of the book of one flew over the cuckoo's nest where they're talking about the combine and how the combine will come down and you know chop your head off if you're if you stand up too tall and it wants complete order the big clock is very much like that i want complete order and it's interesting that they take that and make it into a physical object in the book and then that janeth is really the person there Winding the clock, so to speak. He's the guy who is in that control. Like you said, he knows all of these things in the building. He's able to be that spider in the center of the web, and that that center looks like a clock face. I really appreciate that.
1: Normally, I'm not a fan when they take sort of a metaphor of a title and feel the need to put it in there physically, I guess, for the audience to see, like, here, this is what the big clock is. But, yeah, the idea of taking it from one metaphor for time or fate or whatever and then turning it into a different metaphor for this whole organization and this one guy who is figuratively and then finally literally hiding right in the center of it is pretty amazing.
3: That's part of the wonderful um, set decoration by Sam Comer and Ross Dowd. The fact that most of Jalot's building is very rectangular. In a sense, and then you get to the clock, and it's all circles—the the spiral staircase going up, and and the big round um, dials and everything like that. It's at the heart of
0: this square building is a circle,
3: and I kind of like the fact that they
0: did that. And we're talking about these spots that Stroud and Pauline stop at as they go through this drunken night, and I like that it's this breadcrumb trail then that we follow again when Stroud now. He doesn't find out that Pauline is dead for a while. Like he is put onto the case of looking for this Jefferson Randolph, which he immediately—it's it, kind of like a, a foreshadowing of uh, LA Confidential with this whole Rollo Tomasi mm-hmm. name. You know, when, when the when the police chief comes in, when Captain Dudley comes in and says, "I need you to look up this guy Rollo Tomasi," and immediately. Guy Pierce is just like, oh shit, something's wrong. Same thing when when <laughs> when Janet comes in and says, I need you to look up Jefferson Randolph, immediately the light bulbs go off over George's head. He's just like, oh shit, what's going on? And like I said, he doesn't know that Pauline is dead for quite a while. He thinks that she's not answering her phone, doesn't really know what's going on, why he's investigating himself. But this whole idea of him now being put on his own case. And immediately going from this guy who is a great investigator to now I have to gum up the works. He needs to be the fly in the ointment, the monkey in the wrench. He needs to fuck up the big clock. He needs to suddenly take the worst people and put them in the the worst situations, get his best people and send them as far as way as he possibly can, because he doesn't want anybody getting too close to the truth.
1: In the book, it makes sense. He knows that Pauline's dead. He knows that he's being framed for murder. But with that delayed until his discovery of that delayed until much later, you you'd start to wonder, OK, why does he feel this immediate need to go de- you know, in there and get back into this investigation? Because, I mean, he certainly doesn't worry about having a job and having Jonathan fire him. And it occurs to me it's this idea of he realizes to save his marriage, he has to put his marriage at risk by leaving his wife again because he knows that Janeth can completely destroy his marriage if it's exposed that he was with Pauline. I thought that was really interesting or this possibility that on some level he still thinks he's going to have a job with the organization and that's going to be kaput if he doesn't do this.
3: Yeah, he does seem to be very ambivalent about leaving Janice's publications. There's kind of wishy-washiness about the character because of that. The uh, interesting character we haven't mentioned is Patterson, the artist.
1: Oh, God, Elsa Lanchester? Yeah,
3: who, who just steals every scene she's in and is wonderfully eccentric. She's a the kind of you know, random thing in this whole story that, um, eventually has a payoff. And, uh, she has to do a, like a, um, a dedicate of the man who bought the painting in the antique shop. And she does it in her own inimitable style.
0: <laughs> she gets the last line of the film. If, uh, if memory serves. Yeah, yeah she does. Yeah. And, uh,
3: yeah, it uh, pays to be married to the, one of the stars, I suppose, but, uh, yeah. she does give full value in the role. With all of these very uptight business people, having somebody who is a random artist in there does give you a kind of balance against all of these corporate types that the rest of the film is mostly inhabited with.
1: And unlike Janet, who hides everything under this heavy surface, everything's right up front for her. That that, that insane giggle that just erupts out of her in every scene, practically. Oh, I love Lanchester. I, I remember her in this other noir, Mystery Street, with Ricardo Montalban, where she kind of steals that movie, too, as this nosy landlady who kind of pushes her way into a murder case. She's just incredible.
3: Yeah, she's got all these kids from different fathers. I kind of like that as well.
0: My favorite bit is when George is walking by her, and she's already started sketching, and then she sees him and immediately starts looking up at his face, and then down at the paper, then up at his face, and down at the
1: paper. <laughs> I love when she reveals that she's so happy about this joke that she's about to spring on them. She's having so much fun with the situation.
0: She's so thrilled when the guy offers her $100 to do this, too. It's just like, wow, that is so much more than I was expecting you to say. But she can't even, like, say that. Instead, she gives that laugh again.
2: I could draw him for you.
0: That would be wonderful.
2: Uh, of course. I, I should like to be paid. Of course. Uh, how would $100 be? <laughs>
1: Or the way she can casually drop in little threats of violence in her dialogue when she first meets Klaus Meyer, like, oh, yes, I've been planning to kill you for years, and then immediately turns to her kid and goes, if you drop those, I'll break both your arms, dear. Okay. This is
3: the bit of the movie that reminds us that it's an entertainment. It doesn't get too involved in the dark things, and there are some very dark things in it, but having uh, Elsa Lanchester and a few other bits and pieces in this movie reminds everybody that you're supposed to enjoy it.
0: And you brought up that she was married to Lawton and then Maureen O'Sullivan, who's Georgette, was married to John Farrow at the time. John Farrow father and, and Maureen O'Sullivan, I think, was um, Mia Farrow's mother. So it's yeah. like this kind of family affair that is happening on this uh, set. That family tree gets a bit twisted further down the line, but yeah. And, yeah, one of your fellow countrymen, Terry, uh, John Farrell, coming over from Sydney, I think. Nah, he was born in Ballarat, which is about six, 70 kilometers away from my head. Yeah, he
3: was arrested as an illegal immigrant after he went to Hollywood. Really? <laughs> yeah, he finally sorted it out. But, uh, yeah, the cops got him because he'd overstayed his visa.
1: After this one, I actually want to try and find some more of his work. I've seen Where Danger Lives, Pretty Good Noir, and um, His Kind of Woman, which is just batshit crazy and wonderful. But there's a lot more of them that actually have a lot of the same personnel behind the camera and in front of the camera. Like Night Has a Thousand Eyes that now I definitely want to track down.
0: Yeah, I saw that a long time ago, but I don't remember much about it. I tried watching The Unholy Wife because it was also the same screenwriter. And I I was not into it for whatever reason. I was just not buying it. But I I hear that his kind of woman is fantastic, and hearing that it's batshit crazy makes me want to see it.
1: I almost can't even describe it, because the surprise of where it goes compared to where it starts is just amazing. (laughs) Janeth,
0: the way that he's so specific, especially when he tells Pauline that he'll be at her house at (laughs) 10.55. It's so nice. Not 11, not 10.30, but he'll be there at 10.55. He runs everything like clockwork. And yeah, so it's it's very unlike him to murder her in cold blood, but it is very like him to then try to find out who this man in the shadows was and try to immediately, you know, he, he wants to figure out who this guy is, either so he can rub him out or so that he can pin the murder on him.
3: The other person we haven't mentioned much is Pauline, uh, Rita Johnson playing the victim and, and the lover of Janet. So I think that she gets a couple of really nice scenes in this one, too.
0: Well, it's nice because she's not necessarily a femme fatale. She's a dangerous woman to be around because she's the boss's squeeze, yeah. but she's not trying to lure George or Janeth to his death. She had a weird career
3: because uh, the same year this was, this was made, she was hit in the head by a hairdryer and hit in the legs and got brain damage, and her career was never the same afterwards. Oh, Jesus. Jeez. Yeah, she she had – um. Problems with memory and the coordination and things like that. She had some roles after this. But this is kind of the peak of her career through reasons not of her own making. Through wow. a, one of those enormous old hair dryers dropping on her.
1: I find Pauline and Jen's relationship really kind of fascinating. Uh, the idea of Janeth being this guy who's always about totally being in control and that he's with her and she seems a little bit wild. Maybe the idea of that's what attracts her to him that this idea of expressing something that he can't normally express because he is so buttoned down that she allows him to live a little bit looser. And that while they seem to be, have such a um, antagonistic relationship after she dies, that comment of, you know, she was the most, one of the most generous people I've ever known. That's a fascinating line.
3: I can send you in any number of directions. Just thinking about it.
0: Yeah, she is so much more chaotic than he is. And it's just, it's strange that he would go for that. And there's that whole thing of her with the voice lessons and how much she needs for the voice lessons, how much he's going to give her for the voice lessons, that he has Hagen write the check instead of uh, him doing it himself. But I guess Hagen's there to do whatever he wants him to do.
1: He asked me to pay off an adult film star with whom he had an affair, which I did. Yeah, I think the voice lessons may be a euphemism there. I think you might be right. Just the fact that she manages to find a way to get into his private elevator and into his office is a kind of a nice metaphor for this idea that she's borrowed hers, her way past the armor into who he really is, possibly. And that's one of the things that disturbs him. And also, I have to comment on that amazing line she has that when he asks, you know, how did you get past the elevator guy?
2: I think he must have been winding his watch.
1: To me, sounds like Innuendo right there for her walking by him. <laughs> what his reaction might have been. <laughs>
0: I'm going to have to use that. I was very happy to see uh, Douglas Spencer in this movie as one of uh, George's guys. He's the watch the skies guy from the thing.
1: Oh yeah. Back when he had hair. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. That was great. And he's also the, uh, the Martian with the eye in the middle of his forehead in that twilight zone episode.
1: We were just watching a uh, double indemnity not too long ago. And he's in that movie too, for like a split second. He's the guy who lends, uh, Fred B. Maria's office for a moment. And, um, I think the high overseer, whatever it is, in This Island Earth. Yeah. The more classic movies I've watched, I keep spotting him in the background of, of scenes and things like that. He's yeah, great. I was
3: kind of hoping he'd be there more. I know. Me too. There's a few actors like that in this movie. You've got Dan Tobin playing one of the assistants. He's been in, the, in so many different things. And Richard Webb, who was um, on television playing Jet Jackson, I think, in the 1950s. I remember when I was a very young child watching Richard Webb playing that character on on TV. So there, there are a number of very familiar faces from all sorts of different media all through this movie. Yeah, then, of course, Elsa Lanchester from that great Night Gallery episode
1: one other face that struck me was uh, Teresa Harris, who plays Daisy, the Stroud's maid. It's funny because i just been talking about her with somebody else and, and how she has this amazing career where she keeps popping up in all these other movies. Uh, we just watch Cat People, and there she is in that one. I Walked With a Zombie, Babyface, Jezebel, one of these black actresses who had this incredible career, unfortunately relegated to playing, like, maids and waitresses, but she always made the most of a tiny little part or a tiny little bit of dialogue. And it was really great to see her here, too, for a minute.
3: Yeah, she was very good in that. Uh, the thing is, too, that. This... She didn't play up with any kind of faux accent or anything like that. She played the role totally straight, and you've got to respect that. Oh yeah, that.
1: absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the things that really made her distinctive for that period. You know, I realized that I asked
0: you guys where you saw the movie, and I forgot to say where I saw it. I actually taped this off of TCM. It might have even been AMC back when AMC was pretty much commercial free, and they would show very much unedited movies most of the time. And I I think it was bob dorian and he was talking about the bit with the elevator and how george disabled the elevator with a screwdriver and there was a little controversy about that because they couldn't know how you would actually disable an elevator that people were concerned about safety and so what he does would not actually disable an elevator and that's when it hit me as i'm like looking at my notes going oh yeah he disables the elevator he you know i talked about how he has to ruin the works. He." turns off the big clock at one point he screws up janet's life by doing that and then he ends janet's life by screwing up the elevator and maybe bill's too possibly because i don't think bill's gonna go unscathed when you have janet falling on the elevator box that you're in
3: maybe john McClane saw that movie before Die Hard,
0: because it is very similar isn't
3: it pretty much the same technique yeah
1: I also have to comment, that shot of Janet falling down the elevator shaft, the little Charles Lawton doll they have, it's actually surprisingly effective. I'm surprised how good that looks for the period. And usually, you know, when they throw a doll for, a, you know, somebody falling from a great height, it looks kind of cheesy. But I she was surprised to find it worked really well. Yeah, there's a bit of inertia there and a bit of kind of heft to it, isn't it? And and the pattern on the suit is exactly replicated. It, it They took a lot of time to get it to look just right.
0: And I suppose the other force of chaos in this movie, too, is the Jefferson Randolph, President McKinley, Inspector Regan character, this man of a thousand voices, this radio actor. And we all know that actors were pretty much on par with dirt. You It was one step above, maybe even below prostitution in the old days. And so this radio actor is not looked upon as being a very high member of society. So I love that he gets called in and ends up being – A little bit of an excuse for George, He, uh, like a few people buy that he's Inspector Regan, but then Hagen immediately sees through it. But by Hagen seeing through it, that is ultimately Hagen's undoing.
1: It's really brilliant on Latimer's part that this couple of lines from Fearing's book, we never meet that character in the book he's just kind of mentioned in passing, is actually taken out and made into a real character and a way to resolve the situation. I thought that was incredibly brilliant.
0: Yeah, I don't think enough good things can be said about latimer's adaptation he did such a good job of taking those abstract ideas and making them concrete fleshing out characters that really needed or should have been fleshed out a little bit more the way that he has the intricacies of the plot even more intricate than they were in the book
1: i'll be honest i appreciate the book i i find it very frustrating at points for a lot of reasons stroud's character that the the, Fearing seems to be expressing that he's showing off his artistic side and that he's not a conformist by cheating on his wife and doing all this horrible stuff. Um, and certainly the ending, I thought the, the ending where nothing resolves because of what Stroud did, but just, oh, there's this corporate shenanigans going on in the background and uh, investigation's over and everything's wrapped up. Okay, great. It's, oh, it's lands with such a thud. And how they adapted it and changed it, I thought was so much better. You can see Stroud is a much more proactive character trying to resolve this and trying out things and and trying to push Jonathan Hagen where he can.
3: Jonathan Latimer, the writer who made all that work, also worked for Ray Milland on the Markham TV series. He wrote six episodes of that in
0: 1960. So obviously Milland liked what he did. I think Latimer was a novelist in his own right as well, so he definitely knew plotting, pacing, all of these things, even before he became a screenwriter. I don't know if you experienced this, Tim, going through that last chapter of The Big Clock, the book. I like the book. I like the idea of them switching protagonists and, and narrators like I think seven times throughout the book. I enjoy that, but that last chapter is so confusing. I actually like wrote down all of the things, all the times that they mentioned, because time is so important to that book. And it didn't make any sense. There were times where it was like the next morning. And I was like, wait, no, we are, we are the night before you can't jump to the next morning. And then they would jump back again. It's like, no, no, this is all in the same chapter, the same paragraph at times. And I was like, this doesn't add up like for something that was so intricate and and trying to do all of these things it just felt like fearing was just like you know what fuck it let's end the book today
1: yeah there's a period during the uh the building lockdown where it feels like time jumps a huge amount and i'm like well wait a minute what happened in there how are, you, how are we suddenly here that doesn't totally make sense it was even worse for me because the kindle version of the book i got actually omitted the last line of the book so it just says that stroud looks at a headline i'm like and what and it wasn't until i looked at uh the file used, then I'm like, Oh, Oh, that Jennifer dying. That makes a lot more of an actual ending. Cause otherwise I was just like, what is this? I think the Kindle edition I had had a few errors like that. Unfortunately. Oh,
0: Jesus. <laughs> like One ripping at the last page.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: No wonder the Kindle edition is 99 cents on Amazon. <laughs>
1: If, um, the tone of the book had been captured a little bit more, I w- would feel like that this is a little bit more centered in film noir. Fearing does do a lot more with the idea of the corporation as this dehumanizing effort that not just on Janet's part, but uh, when we see Ray Cordette sort of sh- shooting down everybody's ideas, this idea of creative people being ground into the dirt. As the film plays it, it feels like the company isn't a terrible place to work for. Most of the employees seem like they're having fun when they're doing their stuff. It's just um, Hagen and Janet that really make it a hell to live in. They're the ones who have all these oppressive policies and tactics.
3: They're not going to really kick corporations too
0: much. Yeah, though you do get the, we we are not allowed to talk in the elevator. It's like, what? <laughs> you, you can't talk in the elevator? Like As soon as you enter the building, you are under Janet's rules. And imagine what happened if you fought it.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm all for that rule, actually. That one I think is important. I'm
0: on top of that, too. If the film has any weakness to it, I would say that it wraps up a little too quickly for me. It really feels like those last, say, five minutes, maybe even the last two minutes, just move by too quickly, where it's like, wow, we've resolved it. Oh, here's Elsa Lancaster. Here's a final joke. Boom, the end. I was like, wow. OK, like I would like just a little bit more breathing room right at the end there. But I mean, that's a small quibble that I have with this. Otherwise, I find this movie so delightful.
1: I was a little surprised they didn't bookend it with a pullback out of the building in the daylight the same way they opened it at night. Yeah, just even if it was just out of the credits or something like that. Yeah,
0: yeah but instead that's- and those credits just hit you like a like a brick to the face. It's like, whoa, hey, I was enjoying this movie. You can, you know, make it last just a few more seconds. <laughs> Like you said, it, it is daytime now. This is one of the, the film, few films noir where the bad guy dies, the other guy's getting punished, and the good guy is actually gotten away with it, and
1: everything's fine with him now. And I'll admit, I was curious if he was going to continue working at Janeth Enterprises or if he'd just be like, yeah, I'm done. I'm going on my honeymoon. Bye. And what happens to Janeth Enterprises at Janeth?
0: Yeah. Right. This is one of those movies where I would like just a few more minutes. I would like to, to see the five minutes after the m- end of the film. You know, I don't need to see the five days, five weeks or any of that stuff. Just give me five more minutes. He's has got headlines
3: saying, Janet collapses, you know, Janet publishing collapses and things like that, or, or what happens afterwards and who takes it over and whether Ray Meland's character takes it over.
1: That would have been a fun way to end it. Somebody asked him, would you like Hagen's position? He's like, um, and don't even let him answer. <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit about the cinematography because some of those long single shots are just – it's funny because the first time I saw this, I wasn't even aware they were happening. And watching it now and looking out for the cinematography and realizing there's a good five or six single shots. Sometimes the entire scene is one long moving shot that are just breathtaking. The one in particular that really throws me is when George goes to Pauline's apartment and discovers the facts of the murder. From starting in, you know, him at the front the door door of the apartment, pulling back to the side door, going into the room, moving around as he moves all these objects and uh, picks up some of the clues, goes back out, meets, uh, I think it's Klaus Meyer, and then leaves, all one shot, and it's seamless and beautiful. It reminded me a lot of what Hitchcock did the same year with Rope, those same type of incredibly fluid camera moves and the blocking required for that or some of the ones where he's handing out all the assignments and you have the camera move and the blocking, and these actors all having to remember this very complicated back-and-forth dialogue was just really stunning.
3: Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and watch that scene again now, just with that eye. Watching it later probably wasn't the best thing, but uh, yeah, I, I, I do... I'll still come back to the set designs, I think. Every um, set, whether it's the antique shop, the bar, or the places in janet's uh, and it, also the log cabin that they go to for the holiday all of those look fantastic and I'm, I've got this architectural envy I'm getting with various movies at the moment where I go, yeah I really would like that in my house but then it would change everything and so i have been going watching a whole bunch of movies and, and the movie all the movies we're going to talk about today there's a little bit of
0: architectural envy in me for every one of them in a different way is it because you're actually to see this architecture would mean getting out of the house Yep, with the lockdown that we've been in for over a hundred days, I would be
3: happy to see a McDonald's I haven't been to before.
1: Oh, the idea of going of going to an antique shop or a restaurant or a bar—it's like, oh, oh,
0: for yeah, right. pornography to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the primary cinematographer on this, uh, John Seitz, he was a heavy hitter. You know, he was Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, The Lost Weekend. I mean, this guy was really top notch. It's interestingly, there are two cinematographers on there there's sites and then there's daniel fapp um, which sounds like it's a phony name also a great cinematographer who it was like sites had been around since i think the 20s he started working and then eventually either passed away or retired and then uh, fapp was around until at least 69 working on stuff so i'm not sure what the relationship was uh working together if one was doing something and one was doing the other or if one took over for the other but um, yeah, great work. And I'd say too, the Victor Young score, very, very solid score. It definitely knows when to, to put on the pressure and when to put on the brakes. Because like you said, having those I'm in the mood for love during the montage of the drinking. I mean, got that montage of them out on the town. It is so great. And being able to then turn on the heat when it becomes very
1: suspenseful. I thought he did a great job. I really admire the fact that you just said fap and 69 in the same sentence. Thank you. <laughs> On that note, I have to note during that montage, I had this running question in my head of whether uh, Stroud is, had actually slept with Pauline. And I know it's right in the middle of that montage is that shot of the champagne bottle popping open and all the champagne spilling out. That's very suggestive. That made me think, all right, maybe he did actually sleep with her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think he did. Yeah, it, it feels like it. It feels like it. Though I don't know if we're sub- to think that but i think maybe we are i think it's one of those production code thing officially he didn't but he really did well it's like patterson she's got what four kids by at least three different guys and she's not married to any of them yeah and the secretary is not married either yeah so there's those nice subversive turns in there and i can't remember if in the movie if janet accuses um pauline of being a lesbian but for sure that's in the book it's that whole like at least it was a man this time he says when he comes in and and knows that she's been with somebody else
1: in this version it's just that she's a loose woman but i kind of love that she throws it right back in his face and calls him out on his hypocrisy that oh well, look at you know all the sleeping around you've been doing including the elevator go oh that's true i forgot that yeah
0: <laughs> is that the private elevator or the public elevator there's probably no elevator girl in the
3: private elevator because when bill goes in there's nobody else in the elevator
1: Maybe the whole no talking in the elevator rule was a misunderstanding on her part. He told her, don't say a thing. And she thought, oh, I can't say anything in the elevator, I guess. Nobody said anything in the elevator.
0: And and you talked about the uh, massage scene with Bill. Of course, I had pictures of um, In a Lonely Place with the masseuse, the female masseuse and uh, Gloria Graham in that. And just like that weird lesbian tension that you have. I definitely had that homoerotic tension as Bill's rubbing down Janeth. Yeah, my problem is I just finished reading Scotty Bower's book, and I
3: read the chapter about Charles Lawton just before I watched this movie. I had no idea
0: that Lawton was ACDC.
1: There's some really interesting stuff in
0: that book about Charles Lawton. I'll
1: just put that. I felt really bad hearing about some of the abuse he took from other actors and particularly like, you know, really great leading men who are just homophobic and horrible to him. We were starting to get ready to do an episode on advise and consent and hearing about Henry Fonda throwing all sorts of horrible abuse his way when they were um, doing the stage version of, um, I think it was the Kane mutiny. And then Clark Gable on Mutiny and the Bounty, same thing. And then hearing um, some of the extras on the Blu-ray for this one where they talk about Ray Milan doing the same thing. It's like, oh, that's awful.
0: Yeah, I had no idea. I just heard, oh yeah, he's married to Elsa Lancaster. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, whatever. And I mean, it doesn't make a, a, a you know a, a difference at all to me that he was gay, but I just had no idea that he was until I saw that uh, Simon Cowell interview. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I should read up more on Charles Lawton. I mean, the guy, this is a fantastic performance and this is just one of so many fantastic performances and then that he um was one of these one-shot directors and directs Night of the Hunter was just just so fucking out there i love that movie one oh,
1: shot
0: yeah right you know it's like the, the the one time you direct a film, you go all out and you make this incredible masterpiece never to direct again. It's like, what the fuck, man? I want you to be an auteur. I want to see so many more things from you.
1: I think it's the biggest crime that got bad reviews and prevented him from doing another one because I would love to have seen what else he could have made. And for me, Charles
3: Lawton, in spite of a lot of people like Ilan Chaney, I think he was the best hunter back at Notre Dame.
1: Oh, I agree. He gave oh.
3: real pathos and compassion and relatability which is a hard thing under all that makeup and with everything else going on, made him relatable and a lonely man in um, an unusual situation. It it just gave it so much humanity. That was the first big thing I saw Charles Lawton in, and I've loved it ever since.
1: And I love that when he's playing villains, he never plays villains the same way. I mean, you look at him here, and this is one thing. You look at him in Mutiny and the Bounty, it's something entirely different. You look at him in Island of Lost Souls, which is one of the first things I saw him in, and how energetic and campy and how much fun he's having in that part, playing just evil bastard. Every time, there's a different shade to it. He's not just kind of phoning in any of these.
3: In The Bribe, when he's um, complaining about his feet, and and those kind of movies, fantastic guy. Um, I've got uh, Simon Keller's biography of him and it's just a joy to read
0: i respect callos so much for being both an actor and such a film fan and just the amount of work that he's put into film scholarship i mean the work that he's done with don lawton the work that he's done on wells it's just like wow you know you you could be i don't want to say set but you you know you you're fine being one thing but that you're two things and you're two great things it's just like okay, Simon, calm down a little bit. You're showing me up. <laughs> I'm very lucky. I've got his book on acting. Nice, friend
3: of mine got it for me. Got it signed for me, and uh, yeah, uh, it's one of my one of the books that I've got in my special shelf of autographed books because it's Ooh. just it made the. I'm not an actor, of course. It made the craft and the, and the science and the art of acting really relatable to me, and it's kind of informed me watching movies ever since.
0: All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages.
1: Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zaira and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at
2: fathermalone.com and on iTunes.
0: Hi, I'm Dave Kittridge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared, because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am, selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, it's like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment. With Stephen Trask,
2: let's write something that involves stand-up comedy. Drag, punk, rock. It was so rebellious and precocious, I guess. The definition of gay, to me, is
0: freedom.
1: Women gave the show its life, I feel like. Well, it's also
0: a bit of a hunk fest. You guys are hot as hell.
1: You are too kind. That was only only 15 years ago. It's a no-holds-barred talk with iconic creators and performers. It's not white people. It's not, I hate white people. It's dear white people. It's how you start a letter. The whole climax of the show is a sex scene between Malkior and Vendla, and I remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way, (laughs) shape, or form. I'm always thinking about the audience. Make them feel, make them laugh, and make them cry. I mean, that's as simple as it is for me.
0: I had been not wanting to be a part of the film. It was clear in the edit that I had to, you know, really reshape it. So the film really told me what it needed to be.
1: Cinema is an empathy machine and, and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity
0: in. I get emotional just talking about it. And the tea is definitely spilled. David, don't no. edit
1: anything of this out. <laughs> no, no, They don't no. want to hear all the charming stories. They want to hear the ugly, gory relationship that Jim and I have. <laughs> We're cutting that part <laughs> out, by the way. And with guests like John Cameron Mitchell, Christine Vachon, Laverne Cox, Jonathan Groff, Justin Simeon, Jim Fall, Miss Coco Peru, Rachel Mason, Jeffrey Schwartz hp mendoza
0: and fabulous queens shangela eureka and bob the drag queen i'm sweating the house down Uh-oh, mama you never know what's gonna come up you know me i'm so big and
2: strong that eureka and bob actually <laughs> hide behind me and i protect she is
0: quite the chihuahua
2: mama she does i was up. like
0: wait should we have had security the whole time? <laughs> i think they think i'm the security bitch it's season one of the outcast presented by outfest premiering in the summer of 2020 hope you can join us You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider, now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com.
2: They needed a hero. I understand he has a background in intelligence. There's two tours with naval intelligence. Get him here. He liked excitement. Take us somewhere. He wanted her. Their passion upset the balance of power. What's all this top secret business I've been hearing about it with the Pentagon? You know I work for Bryce?
0: Then that makes two of us.
2: This one can do things for me like no other woman I've ever met. Behind the cover-up. Try and understand. The power. The important thing to abort an investigation before it ever gets to you you haven't told me everything who's running this thing at the pentagon the new boy Farrell. so we can take the fall in case anything goes wrong the loyalty i love you i promise i'll work everything out how did you actually meet the secretary of defense i need a car it's an emergency these people have already tried to kill one person who knew bring this one hey. down no, no no you can't take that If it were your intention to bring down David Bryce, then I have no choice but to make sure that you didn't get away with it. They mean to kill me, Sam. Because of the truth, there's no way out. Kevin Costner, Gene Hackman, Sean Young,
0: Will Patton, no way out. All right, we are back, and we're talking about The Big Clock and of course we're going to talk about some of the remakes of The Big Clock or adaptations of the same book, but really it's more of the same movie. I had no idea until doing research for the show that there was a French film called Police Python 357, which is the name of a gun, just so you know, it's not a dirty movie. French film that has Yves Montan in it, and I wasn't overly impressed. I liked some of the things about this movie, but there were other things where I was just like, would you please get a move on? This is really slow.
1: Yeah, the pacing of this one kind of killed it for me in a lot of scenes.
3: I like Eve Montana in a lot of things. Uh, He's kind of like the French Dick Powell. Started out as a song and dance man and then went on to do serious roles. Uh, And he's the only person that I know who had a big career because he fucked Edith Piaf. She got him his (laughs) first gig. I did the deep research on this one.
0: He and Francois Perrier do not look at all alike, but in the movie, I kept confusing them. I kept thinking that one was one and one was the other to the point where when I think it's Montan pours acid on his face, I was just like, wait, was that him or was that the commissioner? Because this one, we move out of the magazine business, we move into the policier, and this would have been primetime policier this was 1976 this movie came out and we've got this weird relationship between the commissioner who's the perrier character and his wife who is played by simone C- signorette and he's having an affair with uh stefania sandrell but then she's also having an affair with this inspector who's the is character but that relationship so now it's like the, it's the commissioner who's stepping out on his wife, rather than the inspector who's stepping out on his wife. Am I? That—that's how it was, right?
1: That's right. And one of the things I really liked about this, my favorite element, was the Simone Senior A character. The idea of taking the equivalent of the Hagen character from The Big Clock and making it his wife who's aware of all this and that once the commissioner is out of the picture, her reaction to it is not at all what I expected. I thought, okay, it's going to be building up to her hunting down uh, Detective Faroe. And when she finally finds him and what she asks him to do, it was like, oh my God, my heart's kind of breaking for this woman all of a sudden.
3: She's an invalid. She's in bedridden most of the time and she doesn't disapprove. She's got that very French attitude to her husband having an
0: affair. Yeah, it's definitely not America under the haze Code. <laughs> um, yeah, it's Stefania Sandrella, absolutely
3: kind of void of a character. There's, there's not much there. No. That, again, happens in another one of the movies we're going to talk about. But uh, the, the victim of the crime we don't particularly care about
1: she has a lot of quirks in place of a personality. The thing with the alarm clock, the thing with hiding things in the walls of her house for some reason, which I don't know how he kind of guessed that from the watch, but okay, sure.
0: Yeah, that was strange. And yeah, I was just like, what is happening here with this alarm clock she's carrying around? And I, mean, I it, wanted to like this movie a lot more than I did. Yeah. It's all in Australia. At dogs breakfast. I just used that term yesterday so not just australian
3: and there is a great stunt moment in in this movie at the end uh you've got remy julian's guys to do the stunt work the guy to get french calm stunts done, where a guy gets crushed between a truck and oh, a, that was a great big, yeah and it's beautifully done i think i know how they did it with some kind of collapsible thing and they just cut at the right moment but it's a brutal moment of action there there's some kind of great bits at the end none of which have to do with character
1: Yeah, that whole action scene is spectacular, but it's like, what does it have to do with our story at all? Nothing at all, but it looked great. Mm.
0: Great action scene. This reminded me sometimes of uh, the burglars, you know, with the incredible car chase that's in there. So I know that they have these moments of action, but man, yeah, this, it just didn't work. I can see why I didn't necessarily know about this film. The one that people do probably know about is No Way Out, which... Mm. I know a lot of people are fans of No Way Out, but I am not one of them, and I'm not one of them for two reasons. One (laughs) is the overly contrived plot where instead of Jefferson Randolph, the Janeth character, who in this one is uh, Gene Hackman, and the Hagen character, who is Will Patton, they come up with this idea of we will pin... The murder of the Pauline character, who's played by Sean Young, we will pin the murder on a potential spy that we've heard about for years named Yuri. We don't even know if Yuri exists, but we're going to point all the evidence towards Yuri. And then, wouldn't you know, Kevin Costner, all American Kevin Costner, who plays Tom Farrell, he's the George Stroud character, he just happens to be Yuri. When the, what the fuck, man? <laughs> and why call it Yuri? It's like calling him John.
2: What if the search for this man was a vital national security? A secret operation that we could control? It's a house of cards. There is no Yuri. It doesn't matter. All the intelligence agencies believe that there's a mole in the Defense Department. You know the theory? That Yuri was sent here by the KGB while he was still in his teens. And for all intents and purposes, he can pass as an American. Oh, Scott, they've been talking about that for four years. It's the CIA's wet dream. There's never been a shred of evidence. Yeah, but now there is.
1: I had never actually seen this before watching it for this podcast. I've always I'd always meant to. And when that ending came up, I laughed out loud. I'm like, I'm not sure if this is incredibly stupid or brilliant, but oh my god, I it was so funny. And looking back on part of the movie, I'm like, all right, well, that makes a little more sense. And this makes no fucking sense whatsoever now.
3: No, not does the fact that neither Kevin Costner nor Sean Young has any charisma at all in this movie.
0: Sean Young is the other reason why this movie does not work for me. This is the singular performance that I point to. If people try to tell me that Sean Young is a great actress, I always go back to the line that she says.
1: Send postcards from exotic ports and call.
2: What you
0: call them, isn't it? Ports Port. That is the clunkiest line reading I've ever heard. That is worse than the "Oh God, Oh Man" end of Tough Guys Don't Dance.
1: <laughs> it's poor the bad, kid yeah. in,
0: in the big clock. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! Oh man! Is yeah? She's awful. Her death is not necessarily believable. I don't see how her falling from, what, 12 feet onto this glass table, and it's not like she gets stabbed in any way by the glass. At least we don't see
1: it. Yeah, I was waiting it's, for a pool of blood, but nothing came out. Right? Yeah,
3: just around the Sean Young character. The people who did the makeup and costumes in this movie hated Sean Young. <laughs> 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 the and costume. There's a bit where she doesn't wear any costume at all, and, and you know, a little bit of gratuitous nudity doesn't hurt. But the makeup and costumes in this and the hairstyle is horribly suburban. And uh, I mean, there's, there's good character actors in this movie, though. Will Patton's pretty good. You've got Howard Duff turning up in one of his later roles. God, and God. George Zutter. I always, I
1: always like good. him. Yeah, he's great. Oh, yeah. Well, it's,
0: and it's his character in. is the best character in here.
3: He did a TV series called Open All Night, which was set in a 7 Eleven kind of store, which was a bit of a cult, cult classic for me. Uh, they get uh, Fred Dalton Thompson in there doing nothing in particular, but Will Patton's character is a w- interesting character to modernize because of that kind of self-loathing homosexuality mm-hmm. that he kind of exudes in the movie.
0: Yeah, in this one he can admit, or like we can definitely infer that he is a homosexual, that there is that going on that was hidden in the previous films. But I don't know if it necessarily works in this.
1: And they switch around the villainy so that the Bryce character is a lot more in the background and, and he moves forward as the primary villain of the movie, which was I found a little disorienting.
0: Did you already Mar- mention Marshall Bell?
1: Oh, yeah. He's in there as one of the the Harry Morgan killers. And I noticed a very young David Pamer is one of the computer technicians, too. Yeah,
3: I, I did notice that one. Uh, and the chase scenes just seem kind of pointless in this movie as well.
0: Oh, yeah.
3: There are just so many of them with the trains and, and jumping off the freeway and the car crash there. And the rest of it, it's just kind of lame. And they've got a bit – Roger Donaldson, the director, was born in Australia but lived in New Zealand for a long time. And they've got that horrible thing at the New Zealand embassy.
0: Oh, God, with the Maori.
3: Oh, yeah. Haka. That is the lamest haka. I've seen a few in in real life. And you get shit scared when somebody is doing a haka in front of you because they – radiate ferocity at a level you will not see anywhere else in the world. And the Harker we've seen in this one is just kind of meh, and I hated it.
1: There was a, a weird campaign to make sure we know that Kevin Costner's character is a hero. That, opening, that scene on the boat where he has to go out on his own to rescue the watch guy who's nearly falling off of the hull of the ship, which, again, is pointless. If he's a spy, it would not make sense for him to risk himself that way. It would put him totally off mission. And even same with trying to save Iman from the two killers. It's like see kevin costner's a hero get it but again it doesn't make sense with who he is and what his true mission is
3: and that ship scene goes on way too long
1: oh yeah between the ship scene and fred thompson and
0: it felt like there were a couple other things i kept thinking this is proto tom clancy clap trap stuff i love dawn for red october the sum of all fears But, like, when Tom Clancy wasn't good, he could turn out shit like this. (laughs) Are you aware of the Phantom Submarine?
2: Yes, sir. The Phantom Submarine is supposed to be invisible to sonar. They want to build a submarine roughly the size of an aircraft carrier. Well, the Russians won't need sonar to find it. They'll just see this huge bulge out in the ocean. It's my plan to terminate this program.
3: There's going to be considerable congressional resistance. And the other lesson I got from this was, I never in my life want to go to a Washington party. They look no. horrible, <laughs> boring, and just no.
1: And I found the score really weird.
0: Thank you. I thought it was just me. I was afraid I was going to be picking on the score because I tend to do that a lot on the show. But thank you because I know Maurice Jarry has it in him to deliver a great score. Oh, absolutely. But
1: this was like what? Like synth heaven. Maybe he was trying to do a Jerry Goldsmith and show, oh, I can do electronic music, too. But uh, no, he really, he really couldn't.
3: Uh, maybe it was just cashing a
1: check. I will say I really appreciate the long opening helicopter shot. That is a very beautiful shot.
3: It gives you the geography of, of Washington, D.C. very nicely, too. Mm-hmm. And then they've got that horrible scene in Manila in the titty bar and, and on the streets in Manila, which looks absolutely nothing like anywhere in Manila. It's like, <laughs> yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to go out to an airport in Burbank and dress it up to look like the Philippines and throw a few beer bottles on the bar from Filipino beers and then get a couple of women who look vaguely Asian to dance topless in the background. It's just yuck.
0: Why are you calling someone from such a crowded, noisy bar? I'm sure there's a payphone outside someplace there. Don't call from the titty bar. That's just my relationship advice to you.
1: And why do you have to then destroy the phone because she hangs up on you? (laughs) Again, if you're a spy, you'd think you'd want to do not do things that are going to draw attention.
3: And then um, Gene Hackman's character is just kind of not given much to do. There's that bit where he says she does things for me that nobody else can do. And my immediate thought went to pegging. But, but, uh, yeah, it's it's just uh, there's no Gene Hackman doesn't get a lot to do in this movie.
1: And he just sort of disappears in the end. I mean, after that, we'll wrap up in his office. We don't know what happens to his character, if he's affected by this scandal, if bringing this little jewelry box to the CIA is actually going to do anything.
3: Uh, And we don't know what happens to Kevin Costner's character ultimately. We find out that he's Yuri, but we don't actually find out the upshot in his military bureaucracy or what's happened.
1: Or that he's been identified in the photo. Chief Whitlock. Chief Whitlock, it's
2: Anne Marie Harrison. Somebody just broke into my house. A respected cop. Four hundred eighty-five grand. Can I touch it? No, you can't. can't. Maybe I'll just steal it. Maybe I'll just shoot you. A moment of truth. There's been a setback. It's come back very aggressively. Why don't you tell me, maybe, about that experimental stuff? They're extremely expensive. A time to discover.
1: What is it?
2: Money. No, meet me at my house. Eleven o'clock. That nothing is what it seems
1: and Harrison's house just went up in flames check it out definitely arson what are you doing here?
2: a homicide detective, there's dead bodies look at what they got on me an eyewitness saw me outside their house the night it blew up he looked like him he's the chief of police <laughs> how do you solve a murder I gave it money the DEA is on line one I'm gonna send a couple of agents
0: down there to pick up that cash when all the
2: evidence Amory names me beneficiary on her insurance policy points to you they set me up the Prince ASAP chief you okay just do it You think I'm done police off, We're straight upstairs upstairs but I'm not mine right. that's the guy where the hell is the money all right all right, all right. Out of time.
0: And the last movie I want to talk about is one that is not an official remake of The Big Clock, but it was my father-in-law who was telling me about this movie, telling me about Out of Time with Denzel Washington. And he was just like, oh, it's so great. And he starts telling me the whole plot of it. And I'm just like, you're describing The Big Clock. Like (laughs) I had to go home. He loaned me the movie on DVD I went home, I, I looked up looked it up on IMDB and I was like, okay, it doesn't say Kenneth Faring on here. I put in the DVD, I'm like, no, it doesn't say Kenneth Fearing on here. I watched the movie with my mouth agape because I'm just like, this is the big clock, but you're not giving credit where credit is due. This is absolutely bizarre. Because it is the same idea, the guy who has to invest and kill this woman, and whole twist, the woman's not actually dead, but my God could I see that coming from a mile away. Like even the first time I watched this, when Denzel, for no good reason, goes with this woman that he's having an affair with to This cancer doctor and the doctor says you have this terminal cancer, but there's a way that you could possibly cure it, but it's going to cost you all kinds of money. I'm just like, okay, yeah, they're in on it together. Mm. So the twists and turns in this movie were telegraphed so far in advance.
1: I remember being eager to see this because I'm a big Carl Franklin fan after one false move and devil in a blue dress. So I thought, Oh, him and Denzel together again, this is going to be amazing. And it's, it's fine. It is kind of predictable. I was thinking the same thing when we have that scene where Dean Kane's character helps bring in these bodies and we have this close, of him staring at a body on a gurney and we know, okay, now we know where the bodies are going to show up when whoever is killed. And Oh, look, we found a body in the wreckage. It's, it's pretty obvious. Yeah.
3: And there's a weird dynamic between Denzel Washington's character and the two women as well, because there's a lot more passion in the sex scene with Sara Lathan's character than there ever is with the Eva Mendez character. He's supposed to be the wife that he loves. There's no chemistry between those two. But right, right at the start, we get this hot and sexy scene, which is much better than anything in the Costner movie, which kind of works and and it seems like they, they're very into it. And then we suddenly get the thing dropped that no, he doesn't love her. He's, The dynamics between the human beings in this movie, to a big extent, are pretty silly.
0: The one thing that we haven't brought up with all of these movies is that there's usually a compatriot. Like, George Stroud had Georgette, and I like that when Georgette comes in and sees the big board of unimportant clues, that she can see that and... We don't actually, I don't think we get to see her seeing that. But when she walks in, and she's just like, Oh, darling, if you only knew what I've been through today.
2: Take your hands off me, Jefferson Randolph.
0: You see, I've been reading that blackboard too. She can see right through that and know that it's him. Then you've got No Way Out, where you've got the George Junza character that he confides in. And then in this one, you've got the John Billingsley character who spots that Denzel the Matt Lee Whitlock character is in a jam and sticks up for him. And then he becomes the compatriot going so far as to drive Denzel around to all these different spots and stuff. I thought it worked better when it was Georgette as the compatriot, which again, completely, if if memory serves, there is no compatriot in the book. He is completely on his own, kind of like a noir character should be. But I enjoyed that Georgette was his ally in this.
1: I appreciate that it was sort of the thing that brought them together. They never spend any time together, so they spend time together trying to get him out of a murder rap. It's it's sweet. Yeah, I kind of like the John Billingsley character in this one.
3: He yes. kind of humanizes the fact that Denzel Washington's playing a Denzel Washington kind of character who's a little bit naughtier than a normal Denzel Washington character. And, uh, yeah, the fact that he's a medical examiner as well, he's a drunk, and his wife keeps chucking him out of home. I kind of like the fact that he gets a lot more backstory than the protagonist in some ways.
1: I like that he starts as the devil on his shoulder saying, hey, let's take this money and do stuff with it and have fun with it. And it almost sets you up to think that he's going to be one of the antagonists, one of the villains. And then to have it turn around and know he's actually on his side is a, a nice little turn.
0: That whole thing with the cell phone, I thought was very nice. Hey, uh, Alex, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I was kind of drifting off there. What
2: What'd you say that number was? Five, 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 zero, one, nine, nine. Zero, one, nine, nine?
1: sure it's not one, zero, nine, nine.
2: Chet, 0199 0199, that's weird, that's that's my cell phone number yours? yeah, you County? yeah, I work part time as a paramedic you know, football games, school stuff and you called him last night? I, I don't know did I... oh Jesus I did call him last night oh Alex, I'm sorry, that's right I called him from the bar, I wanted to see if he wanted to come have a couple of drinks with me, oh Jesus, I'm sorry you're friends with him Yeah, I wouldn't say that. He's like uh, my, uh, you know, bottom of the list guy when you got to have somebody to drink with. I'm sorry, man. I mean, I would have mentioned it earlier. It's just I totally forgot. Well, yeah, you should have mentioned it. I mean, you should have told me this at the scene, Jay. I'm sorry, honey. What can I tell you? I don't remember too much about last night. I had a fight with Barbara. I'm sorry. I was in no good shape. Okay, you know, check with the bartender. I closed the place. Staggered home, passed out in bed
0: next to my wife. Believe me, I didn't move until I got the call to show up at the scene. That worked. I
1: thought that was very nice. Uh One of my favorite bits, and one thing I think updated really well, is when they bring in the witness to identify the man she saw outside, and she looks at Denzel and goes, it's him. And then sees the other black un- cop and goes, oh, wait, maybe it's him. And everyone's just like, oh, yeah, all right. Old white lady just sees all the black guys and think, maybe it's him. That was, a, I thought, a really great moment and a great way to play off that scene from the original. And I like the locations. The, the southern
3: um Florida locations really work well. Again, I've got that kind of architectural envy. I want Denzel Washington's stilt house out on the water. That's a very cool thing. There's the bits that are in Miami in the old hotel, and that action scene kind of works in context. And there's also the fact that all of the main characters act like the professionals they are. Nobody has a lapse of professionalism just for a plot convenience. It is not a badly written script.
0: No, which is very surprising. Looking at the filmography of the guy who wrote this, David Collard, who is more known for acting, and he's been around in acting since the late 70s, he's mostly known for working on Jackie Chan Adventures and The Family Guy. And it's like, okay, that's interesting that he writes Out of Time in Annapolis. I'm very curious to see what his script drawer looks like. What else has he written? Because Family Guy and Out of Time, kind of different milieu. Yeah,
3: but uh, I think the biggest weakness in this one is probably Eva Mendes, who's just doing a generic female cop ex-wife character. There's nothing inhabiting that particularly
0: for me. It took a lot of years before I found an Eva Mendes role where I was like, oh, she was actually decent in that. And I think that might have been Port of Call, New Orleans. But otherwise, those roles that she plays in Ghost Rider and Hitch and stuff, it's just like, she could be anything. She's a very lovely... Well-spoken, makes it through the scene without flubbing anything, but there is no there there for so many of her roles.
1: I really don't think she's served by the material here either. I think it's it's very lazy, this whole, oh, we were married and then now we're divorcing and we have this combative relationship. It feels like the screenwriters are too lazy to actually see their relationship build. So we'll just write in that we'll, they've already had a relationship. Trust us. They had all this history. Just go ahead with the plot.
3: I think the nice elaboration on the plot that this one has is the money. Ultimately, rather than being a murder, it's a con job in a sense. And and the money and that extra tension you get when the feds want the money back all of a sudden kind of works to, to ramp up the tension more than I thought it what I wasn't expecting to enjoy this movie. But I think it's a good, honest kind of B
0: picture in a sense.
1: I do like that the Denzel Washington character is doing something wrong, but not for a horrible reason, that he is trying to do something nice for somebody.
0: He really thought that she had cancer and that by giving her this money – it would be good, and that he was taking dirty money and giving it to a clean cause. And I have to say, too, that this was a decent Dean Kane role, too. And I know he's kind of off his rocker these days after he started doing Christian films. I don't really trust him anymore, but I'm, I was glad to see him in this, and I thought he did a great job. Yeah, yeah.
1: and how often do you get to say that? I got to say, I was very pleased seeing him get the crap kicked out of him and finally shot. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's mean, but, you know, you got to please
0: the crowds where you can. Uh, next then, up yeah. for Dean Kane, Faith Under Fire, where he plays Pastor Dan Underwood. So there I you go. Oh, it's not out yet, as far as I know. But pretty soon, we'll have that, that new Christian film to watch. Well, be I believe Kevin Sorbo is probably in there with him.
3: Oh, I think I'll dodge that particular genre. I mean, I'm, I'm, a fond, I'm trying to seen more genre films but christian homily kind of movies i think i may skip that genre
1: i think i'll just kind of stare at the sun for a few hours instead i think that'll be better yeah
0: uh anything else we want to talk about with these remakes or sequels not sequels remakes i think it's a good story that can be retold well
3: and i think that the the out of time one makes a a reasonable effort at it but the other two i wasn't that fond of
0: it's funny i think out of time is the best adaptation of the big clock the best remake that isn't a remake
1: i'm interested that it can be adapted into sort of different environments uh, publishing in the case of the big clock um crime with um police python 357 and out of time and then politics and espionage with no way out i'm curious as to what other places you could take it and adapt it into a, a whole different environment or different subgenre and have it work instagram influencers
0: I am curious. I'm sure that there are other movies where people have been set on the path of investigating themselves. I need to look that up because it goes along with something that I'll be talking about next year, which is the person who assumes the identity of someone else. You know, In this one, you're investigating yourself, but you're calling yourself a different name. Jefferson Randolph, Yuri, whatever you have. And then in White Sands, it's the character who assumes the identity of someone else, but nobody knows what he looks like. It's like Red Rock West. And I know that there are several films like that. I'm sure there are also films like this where you are investigating yourself. But these are the the biggest instances of those.
1: One thing I did want to bring up is I feel like the big clock has that influence on movies that aren't remakes or necessarily even using the same story, but you can still feel its imprint on films in with different stories and even different genres watching. it, I kept thinking of little bits of uh, the apartment, this idea of this corporate environment and an employee becomes involved with the boss's girlfriend and all this trouble about trying to clean up the boss's mess. I felt like there's little echoes of this story in that, too. Um, certainly the two versions of insomnia with a guy trying to throw suspicion off himself for a crime while he's also sort of involved in the investigation. Disclosure, even as disgusting as some of Michael Crichton's politics are in it, this competitive corporate environment. Uh, a guy who's trying to balance what happened at work with his the awkward situation with his wife. And one I particularly like, Gremlins 2. The whole Clamp Center and Daniel Clamp himself is sort of the benign, more friendly version of Janeth. <laughs> is there a politician that appears in that one? I do remember that movie also had the gag that all the clocks in the building are wired together and becomes a plot point in that one, too. So,
0: Oh, yeah. Good one. No, I don't remember uh, a politician being in that one. I just remember that the... Uh, no
1: Isn't Trump in it?
0: I think yeah. the Glover is just modeled... At, the Daniel Clamp is modeled yeah. after Trump.
1: Yes. Thankfully, we can watch that one without wincing. Unlike Ghost Can't Do It,
0: which is completely ruined now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
2: You're looking at a guy named Gagan. Gagan didn't like getting pushed around. So he pushed back, but he picked on a big man, someone out of his league. I wanted what he had. He refused to give it to me. There was a fight. You fell short he wasn't as tough as he thought he was. So you had him killed. Only Gagin wasn't alone. He had a team. A couple of characters he found hiding behind a fiesta. Pila, a stray pup whose devotion no words can explain. I don't know what to do tonight. Oh, why don't you get yourself on the Chacho? Like your girlfriends. I don't know how. You're telling me. And Poncho, the merry-go-round man. You don't think so much of Pancho, you're wrong. Pancho is a right guy. For a friend, he let himself be beaten to a pulp. The knife is good, it's easy to fix. I got three knives in me. When you're young, everybody sticks knife in you. And there's Marjorie, pretty and smooth. So smooth, Gagan can't tell whether she's friend or foe. I'm not making a pass, I'm just being stupid. What's on your mind? Hmm. And Retz, who looks out for the law. I got a job to do, Gagan. I can't be wasting my time keeping an eye on you. You better come along. But is this a pinch? You already know what's going on. I know. They thought to kill you.
0: That's right. We're continuing November next week with a look at Robert Montgomery's Ride the Pink Horse. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Terry and Tim. So, Tim, what is the latest with you, sir?
1: Well, you we still have tons of uh, podcast episodes coming up on www.cinemaspection.com. In fact, for the end of the year, we're planning on doing an episode on the Hudsucker Proxies. And now I feel like I'm going to bring all sorts of new insights to it from watching this again. I love that movie. I wish that movie got more attention. It's so much fun.
0: Oh, it is wonderful. And I saw it without knowing anything about it. So when he held up the picture of the circle, I had no idea where that movie was going. I was so happy.
1: <laughs> well, for me, I'm just a huge fan of Jennifer Jason Lee, So anything she does. And in that movie in particular, her comedic timing is so brilliant. And Terry, what is keeping you busy these days?
3: I'm doing YouTube. I have a channel called Terry Talks Movies where I do pretty much what the title of the channel says. Uh, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of Halloween stuff and trying to do some obscurities. Done a couple of Australian movies recently, and I'm going to keep that up for the rest of the month. Then I'm going to be hitting Indonesian action cinema with things like The Raid because I found out there are tons of people on U- watch YouTube videos from Indonesia, and so I can get lots of views from doing that. And I also uh, am exploring the movie industry next door to my country. And I'm really enjoying dipping into Indonesian cinema.
0: I saw that you did an episode on Thirst, which is funny because I just talked about that on the Culture Cast.
3: Yeah, I kind of like it. It was filmed here in Melbourne, and it's, uh, pro- I think it is definitely the first real Australian vampire film. And so I wanted to take a rewatch of that and had some fun with it as well. I also did tw- a session where in 25 hours I watched every Tarantino movie. Wow. Yeah, Ouch. it messed with my head.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would think so.
3: It's locked down. you do anything to keep the party.
0: <laughs> and on hour 23, I thought I was a
1: hummingbird.
3: It was nice to get Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the end of it because the Hateful Eight was really dragging my ass at the time.
1: Yeah, that was yeah. a rough one.
3: Misogynistic and rough, but mm. uh, getting a little bit of hippie stuff in there kind of made it easier at the end.
1: Well, thank you
0: so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.